Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I am your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks for always for cook and play on the pod. Hello everyone, welcome to another show. Hope you're all well. I've had a haircut and that's the end of that. (laughs) I have, I had a ponytail going down my back and I've now just got uh, hair. It's very weird. Very weird. Three years with long hair and now I've just got floppy hair, I call it. Um, But I hope you're all well. I'm not going to do too much of an intro on this episode because it's a special episode. It's um, episode two, well, part two of Into the Wild in Namibia. So if you've not listened to part one, go back and do that. So that's pretty much the end of me. I just want to say welcome. Welcome to the show. Lovely to have you here. Um, Enjoy this very special episode of Into the Wild. you a listener of the show you will know that we recently did an episode called into the wild in namibia part one which some of the super nerds out there may have put two together and figured out that there is gonna be another part and you're right Okay, so let's start with a quick recap, shall we? Into the Wild went to Namibia to screen our film Beyond the Trigger and to travel a bit more into the field and attend some conservation events and meet with some people. Now, in part one, which was actually towards the end of my trip, we travelled to a conservancy called Angu. There we spoke with a farmer and newly appointed conservancy manager, Neville Hendricks. Our groundwater levels are going down because of climate change, Mm. because of the drought situation, and then it causes desertification. So we need to get to our water and we don't have funds to get to the water. What the trophy hunting uh, is actually doing is it is giving us a little bit of access to some water points. Not all of our problems are being sorted by trophy hunting. Please don't get me wrong. Not all of our issues are being (laughs) sorted, but it helps a little bit. If you haven't caught up with this episode yet, I very much recommend scrolling back and giving it a listen. Now in part two, our journey into the field was just beginning. We travelled to a small town called Korikas in the southern part of the region, the Kunene. It's a smallish town, but a beautiful one with an approximate 6,000 people population. On arrival, I met someone who was actually on our episode about trophy hunting way back in 2020, and this person was called Lorna Dax. Right, well, it's lovely to meet you. I'm sat here with everyone with Lorna Dax, who was on our first episode about trophy hunting in Namibia back in 2020. Yes, that's correct. Uh, (laughs) How have you been? Brian, it's good to meet you in person. I've been um, well, um, although currently we are facing a very sunny and it's hot and we are celebrating the World Rhino Day, Mm. but it's good to meet you in person. The reason we had travelled here was because it was the day after World Rhino Day and Save the Rhino Trust Namibia and the Namibian Nature Foundation were holding a community conservation event to celebrate and raise awareness of black rhino. This being because the Kunene has the largest free roaming population of the species. Um, there's quite a big crowd here. They're all watching a game of football. So I guess let's quickly paint a picture. What is happening today? Why is everyone gathered here for this? So we are celebrating the World Rhino Day on the 22nd of September. 
But on the 22nd of September, Save the Rhino Trust, together with the Namibian Nature Foundation, uh, for this year we decided to honor our female ranchers and female game guards. So um, we had a different event for the female ranchers mm. just to show appreciation for the job that they are doing in the conservation of Kunene region. And today, which is the Friday after the World Rhino Day, we are gathered here with the communities of Korihas, which is in Kunene region. So as we know, Kunene region I'd actually been to the Kunene region before, but considering it's 44,500 square miles, which is five and a half times the size of Wales, wherever you visit feels pretty unique and special. The Kunene gets its name from the Kunene River, which forms the northern border with Angola. Now, fans of geography will know that means that the Kunene is the northwest part of Namibia. With large open space and having just one of the five perennial rivers in Namibia, meaning it always has surface water, the Kunene is a place of great importance for wildlife, communities and indigenous tribes such as the Himba people. So this area as well, so the Kunene, why, why has this got the biggest population of black riders? Is there something specific about this habitat or is it just the work that's gone in? How would I say we have 86 conservancies in Namibia, mm. but most of the conservancies, around 38 of them, if I'm not um, mistaken, are based in Kunene. Right. And we have 13 communal conservancies, 13 to 14 communal conservancies that are custodians mm. of, of the black rhinos. So with the custodianship program, the conservancies agreed for black rhinos to be reintroduced in their conservancies. And these are the conservancies that, that has the custodianship agreement with the ministry, with the government. And so that's why the, um, the black rhinos were reintroduced um, in the Kunene region based on studies from the past many years ago. It was also shown that rhinos used to live in these areas as well. Right. So, is that, so it's a sense of because they used to be here. It's yes, like bringing yes, them back that's to this correct. region. Yes. So this day, like you said here, is to kind of bring community that might not normally be involved with conservation? Yes, community that is already involved in conservation as well as community that's not, as people from outside that mm. are not involved because this day is also to show appreciation to the communities yeah. as well because we are trying to celebrate as um, an NGO or because I'm currently working for Save the Rhino Trust mm -hmm. and we cannot do this alone. Um, no. Conserving the black rhinos, it's like it's joint effort and without the communities, the successes, all these 80% reduction of poaching would not be possible. That's why we include the communities in the celebration to give them our appreciation as well. In my last visit to the Kanene, I went to a conservancy called Radi Wells. Oh, I really hope I've done the clicks. I'm really trying to do the clicks, everyone, so I really hope that's right which is featured in the film Beyond the Trigger that we made. During my time here, I spoke with a lot of people about human-wildlife conflict. The Conservancy Committee members and game guards told me their views and stories from other people about what it's really like living with large and often dangerous wildlife. But aside from telling me the stories, they also shared how they hope that their own lives are seen as just as important as the animals they share the space with. We also learned that in the past, relationships with communities and wildlife have not been as strong as they are today. Human-wildlife conflict was a very big problem for both sides. The environment of the Kunene being a semi-desert and even lower rainfall now with the climate crisis showing its true colours, means competition for resources between communities and wildlife grows stronger. However, the work continues to take place to show people the power of living and benefiting from the animals. 
I mean, you must have to talk to a lot of like the community people around the Kanene about rhinos and stuff. How do people feel about rhinos here? Rhinos in Kunene region, as I say, um, they are free roaming. Mm-hmm. There are no fences. They are not in parks. And they are roaming at farms of community members. Really? Yes, stringing at water points. Uh, these community members will give us a call and tell us we have spotted a rhino somewhere. And uh, you know, it's our rhinos. It's their yeah. rhinos. And they are, they are so proud of it because um, they benefit uh, when you are in a conservancy. There is rhino tourism, say for instance, and guests come to these lodges, do trekking and mm-hmm. pay the lodges for the trekking. So this is also a form of benefit going to the communities as yeah. well. So um, the communities avail their land for the rhinos to move around mm. and they live together with the rhinos. They are passionate about them. So yeah, that's, that's so nice to hear because it, it's I I don't know when I talk about when I think about people living with rhinos, in my head I'm thinking, God, there must be tensions. But at the same time, if you've got that love for the animal, then I guess you're halfway there for success yes, anyway, yes. right? If they they have the love and it's like, uh, what would I say? They feel for the rhinos the same way they feel for their livestock. I would say right yes, okay. because they are the owners of the rhinos. Because it's the ownership. Yes, God, that's, that's where the ownership aspect comes yeah. in. So yeah, it's that it goes back to that protect what you love and or if you own that, you have that responsibility yes, yes. for it. That's correct. So I'm gonna, if you don't mind me asking, we're gonna talk about poaching a little bit because we we've made be on the trigger here this this year in Namibia and we we learn a, a little bit from Simpson from Save Rhino Trust about the difference between poaching and trophy hunting but but in learning about poaching we actually learn about how how much of an effect it's having on animals like black rhino and this year alone has been quite a challenging year for poaching for poaching it has been a challenging year but not in the area where safe the rhino trust uh, operates oh, and right, not okay. on communal land mm. because the last poaching incident that was reported in the Kunene region actually was August 2020. So we are now 24 months without poaching wow, in the Kunene region. Yes. That's amazing. What an achievement. And that's all thanks to the communities. Yeah. The As I said, relationships are very important. It's the community efforts because the conservancies also employs rhino rangers. Yep. And um, it's the stakeholders, the government that is helping, mm. and conservation NGOs that are supporting Save the Rhino Trust yeah. as well. So it's a collaborative effort um, that has bring the success. And as I said before, poaching has reduced in Kunene region, mm. and believe me, on communal farmland yeah. by 80%. It's yeah. incredible though, because when you look at a nation that is still having poaching elsewhere, and then you look at the Kunene that's got yeah, yeah. there's a community Poaching aspect everywhere of it. on commercial farms and other places is still happening but not in Kunene region not on communal land oh it's so obvious isn't it <laughs> it's, the answer is so obvious <laughs> that's that's incredible and down to 80 percent so what I mean obviously I don't want to put this pressure on you but what do you do to get that last 20 percent um, you know, we have recently launched the Rhino Cup Youth Champions League. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a sports, but we believe that communities love sports, yeah. especially soccer. And there is not much soccer happening or not much sport happening in the region. So we have this year started um, with the Rhino Cup Youth Champions League Namibia, mm. where we piloted into six conservancies. And believe me, 16 teams registered from these six conservancies. Wow. And these are youth, a school, some are school going, um, some are back at their homes. And uh, they are, the age range is like 16 to 32. 
from the age of 15 to 32 that wow. are playing in these teams. Even a teacher is playing against this learner. <laughs> <laughs> Build intention so, for uh, conservation. Yes, when you come to these games, you would see old ladies are there. Yeah. They are selling their bread, you know, and the soccer is bringing communities together. Mm. So we believe that if the communities are kept busy, they see that it's the rhino that has yeah. brought the cup for them because there is rhino messaging, there is like everything that is associated with the cup is linked to the rhino. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what built the connectedness. And apart from the Rhino Cup Youth Champions League, we have also introduced the Reading with Rhinos program this year. Mm -hmm. We have made reading books for grade 1s and 2s at schools mm -hmm. within the Gunene region, but we have piloted it to three conservancies now, to three schools. So we made books with the US A to Z Learning to Read. Mm -hmm. And um, on each page, we have um, made sure we put the Rhino mm -hmm. character. So when the learner is learning to read, he or she knows that he is learning to read with the rhino. And that builds connectedness already in that grade one and two lower classes. Yeah, yes. it goes down to these really, almost like these simple things, because I think these are things, when we look at conservation, we forget things like this. I think it's quite easy to forget about how to actually engage a local community yes, or to yes. put your NGO into the local community. I don't think, I, I mean, I've never heard of, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I've never heard of an NGO going, well, let's go down to the real roots of it and say, let's get into education, let's get into sports and stuff like this. And like you said, if you're appearing everywhere, then people are just going to start following and supporting. Yes, right? yes. And apart from those, we are trying to build rhino clubs with the youth, out of school youth, mm. because, you know, you don't want to leave the youth idle. They are already unemployed, but at least when you keep them busy with the mm. youth clubs, they, they don't come someone from outside won't come and buy them with a hundred dollar to go poach a rhino yeah, yeah so being part of the rhino youth club and the part of the rhino pride campaign also you know makes them feel proud mm. because they are being involved in something that matters to the community yeah yes it's so cool i really like it and so for the rest of 2022 what have srt got planned is there anything else in the diary? Well, September has already been a busy yeah. <laughs> month for us because before the World Rhino Day, we had the Wildlife Ranger Challenge. Mm -hmm. that took, it took place all over Africa. Mm -hmm. All the rangers were taking part in this challenge. It took place on the 17th of September. And after that, we went straight into the female rangers thing. And now we are at the World Rhino Day. So as September is coming to an end, at least the calendar looks clear. For <laughs> you get the, some rest. But that's only for the administrative office. Yeah. The field offers they are busy 24/7. So mm -hmm. I would not say the calendar is clear for them. But at least for us at the administrative office, um, for now uh, the calendar is clear. But then we keep busy with writing reports to donors and you know try to find more funding for the programs to go on and grow. What do you think the true success of wildlife conservation is? Um, the true success of wildlife conservation. Yeah, how, to, how do you truly succeed in wildlife conservation? Ryan, um, <laughs> in Kunene region, I would say that we succeed because of the communities. Because the communities are the eyes and ears on the ground. Mm -hmm. Believe me, even if they see a suspicious car, those uh, the communities will call. Really? Even if there are people settling illegally in a conservancy, 
they would call their conservancy office and inform the conservancy office. That's how involved the communities are. And if, when it comes to conservancies, they, they do donations. And they have actually made out a piece of land within their conservancies for rhino breeding alone or wow. where tourism alone should take place. So these are all the things that are enabling conservation to grow. That's incredible. Well, Lorna, it's lovely to meet you again. Thank you so much for this chat. It's got very hot in this car, so I think we need to go and get some fresh air. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Thank it was you a so pleasure much. meeting you. You too. There's two words that come to mind when I reflect on my chat with Lorna. That's community and love. Now, I don't want to get too wishy-washy here, but it's true. I'm not saying for a minute that we don't have those two things in England. I mean, heck, I've got those two things in my life directly. But when I hear about the life in the Kunene from Lorna and others, I hear that these two words play a strong part in the success of wildlife management and protection. To love wildlife as much as you love something you own, like your livestock, to have this feeling of connection through an entire community, it's no wonder that the Kunene, whilst having its challenges, still has massive success. I wonder if love is needed more in England when it comes to our communities and looking at wildlife. I also wonder why is love not present as much as it used to be? What's changed over the years? Why did it disappear? I mean, let's be real, we've all got our answers and our thoughts on this. But for now, it's just something for each of us to ponder. At the very end of my trip, when I was back in Vinthook, I got to meet with someone who I've conversed a lot with on social media. And that person is conservation consultant and communicator, Gail Thompson. It's weird when you meet someone you've only spoken to online via Twitter and not even seen a photo of. Gail is this adventurous style, calm and collected person who has this warm vibe about her. I wanted to talk to Gail because she's worked in Namibia and Botswana for a number of years, focusing on communal conservation areas. I wanted to talk to Gail because it would be interesting to get an insight on Namibia's community conservation programs from someone who doesn't work directly from them. Where, where do you love in Namibia? Because Namibia is huge. Hmm. Where do you love in this country? The northwest, northwest. the Kunene region. Yeah. When I went, everyone loves the Kunene yeah. region. <laughs> when I lived there for, so I lived there for nearly three years in a tent. In a tent. Mm. You lived in a tent for three yes. years. And I just break down and put up tent almost every two days. Uh, I became an expert tent. Um, <laughs> Could make loads of money at Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and it's a pretty big tent. It's a big canvas tent. Yeah. Um, with steel poles. So it's not your average little pop-up nylon pop job. But it wouldn't have survived three years if it wasn't yeah. made out of canvas and steel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I lived there, that was the best two two or three years, two and a half years, I suppose. Mm. But it was the best time of my life. Did you see so Black Rhino fun. when you were there? Yeah, not very often because I was working with the communities, so I spend more time where people are than where the animals are. But whenever I got a chance, I snuck off. Snuck off to Yeah, yeah. and uh, I was very, very privileged to go on a weekend little trip with Garth Owen Smith. So he's pretty much legendary in communal conservation. He wanted to go and check out if there were lions in the Huab River. Yeah. So we went down there to, and we found lion tracks and no lions, but we did find a couple of black rhinos. So that was... It's quite special when you that see That was it, pretty it? awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And yeah, also as Garth said himself, he said, we don't have the same quantity of animals that you have on other safaris in Africa. So you could go on a safari pretty much anywhere else and see more animals per kilometer. But when you see an animal in the Kunene, it's like, 
now I've seen it. Like now I can go home. I'm done because <laughs> because you don't see animals like that anywhere else. Like yeah, you can yeah. see a giraffe there, and you're just like, wow. Yeah. That's a giraffe. <laughs> you see a giraffe in Itasha, you're like, giraffe, giraffe, skinny giraffe, skinny giraffe, 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 skinny giraffe, 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 more giraffe, giraffe. <laughs> but yeah, you see a giraffe out there, it's like you stop and you take a photo. <laughs> I want to ask you this question because you know we've we've conversed a lot on social media and you know we've on this trip I've spoken a lot with uh, people in conservancies and in that program and on a community and a, on a management level as well. What do you make of the community-based programs out here with the conservancies? I think there are simpler ways of doing conservation. Mm. <laughs> if you wanted to do things simply you would fence off the area, check out the people, and conserve the animals. That's that's how conservation's been done in Africa since... Protectionist. The year dot, yeah. yeah. So it's fairly, once you trample people's rights and get rid of them, you can do conservation quite successfully. So it's simple, but it's completely against the principles of human rights. Yeah. Against everything really against all sorts of morality and um, to just exclude people and favor animals yeah so although we still have those places in Africa and I think some of them are important places like Itosha National Park they are important to conserve yeah um, certainly conservation in this century you can't just keep ignoring people you can't just keep ignoring Africans and decide to rule Africa like colonial people did yeah, way back yeah. when so if you want to conserve animals outside of protected areas, you literally don't have a choice. You have to involve people. So even the ardent conservation biologist who runs away from people and just wants to hug animals all day, <laughs> they don't have a choice. <laughs> it's, it's not an option. You can't run around the Kanene and hug lions all day. It's just... And also you, don't. <laughs> you, yes, also don't. Also not a, bad, not a very good idea. Yeah. So you have to conservation particularly conservation these days in every country mm. it's 90% people 10% wildlife yeah. um, and conserving land and habitat and wildlife outside of protected areas is complicated and it's messy and it requires people and because it requires people every human being has their own opinion on how things should go mm-hmm. and really the way I like to look at communal conservancies and they're also a lot more complicated than the freehold farms yeah. so your freehold or private land you have your chunk of 6,000 hectares or whatever it is and that's yours you can do whatever within reason within, there's some yeah. environmental within, within legislation and, there's some yeah. environmental <laughs> legislation that you're not allowed to break but it's not as regulated yeah. as, as Europe so you can pretty much do what you want on your X thousand hectares mm. And you can decide how to manage it. You can put as many whatever antelope as you want on there. You can pretty much manage it as you want. And it's just one family who's doing the managing. You have a bunch of workers that do what you tell them to do. They don't have a choice on a democracy. You do what you want to do. So that's on the private land. Now you get communal conservancies. There are hundreds of families. And they all have different needs mm. they all want different things they all have different opinions and you've got to bring this bunch of people together yeah. and then they have to decide on x y and z and they elect their committees and so on but it's really a lot more like a democratic country than 
anything else. I mean, it is a democracy, and democracies are messy. Yeah. Anyone who comes from a democratic country, you will know. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. There's it, never been an agreement. Yes. It would be a lot easier in England if the royal family just said X. Yeah. And everyone just went, okay, X. We'll deal with that. Done. Yep. Yep. And they didn't worry. And that's pretty much how Swaziland or Iswatini operates. The king woke up one day and decided he didn't like the name Swaziland anymore and changed it to Iswatini. So now it's Iswatini. Shut the up and... There was, yeah, there was no debate. There was no referendum. Yeah. There was no what do Swazis think about Iswatini. It was not, it was not open for debate. Yeah. The king said X and X happened. Mm. So it's much easier when you just rule with an iron fist. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it tends to, to benefit morality. the king an awful yeah, yeah. lot more than anyone else. Whereas if you want to try and abide by democratic principles and you want to allow people to actually have a say mm. in how they manage their life and their land and their wildlife, then communal conservancy is what we got. And it's messy and it's difficult. And it doesn't always work the way the biologist or the conservationist wants it to work. But that's really besides the point, because you don't live there, they do. Yeah. So as long as they are happy, and they're not always happy. <laughs> no, this is something I've learned as, <laughs> as well. As long as yeah. your majority yeah. votes for some committee and they put their... It's pretty much like living in a country. Yes, you may not be particularly yeah. happy with your current government, but at least you have a vote. You so you feel like, there, yeah. yes, I do. Maybe I don't like my current government, but I do have a vote and I'm not under a monarchy. My little say might be only one little say, yeah. but at least I have a say. Yeah, so absolutely. you have rights. Yeah. And that's the point, is that not everyone in the whole conservancy is going to be happy with the committee that no. was elected. Not all of them elected, like voted for that particular committee. Yeah. That's how democracy works. I mean, I'm not happy with so, our leadership in our country. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so not everyone is, yeah. is happy with it, but that's how democracy works. And if you have a commitment to uphold people's rights, and you have a commitment to really let people decide yeah. and let them have a vote, then that's the option that you've got to go with. And you've got to help them in whatever way they need help. So I think the support organizations as well, NAXA, um, all of them, <coughs> IRDNC, NNF, mm. all of that alphabet soup that support the conservancies, they're also not perfect. They all have their own organizational issues but I think what drives them is that they believe in democracy they believe in rights yeah and they believe that the people really should have a say so they don't always do it perfectly mm. but the ideology as it were that's behind it and what they're trying to achieve to marry sustainable development and nature conservation has remained the same since forever and it's a very very difficult thing to do like there's nowhere on earth that has married those two things perfectly yeah, it just isn't so they're trying to achieve this massively difficult task in a democratic system and they're trying to do it without imposing their views and ideas mm. on people but just provide them support and it's this big balancing act of how much support do you sort of give them because you realize, yeah, yeah, you're like, maybe they have financial problems, this conservancy. So maybe we should do their books for them. But then you're sort of taking that control. Yeah. You're controlling their finances now. Or maybe we let them do their books, but we just train their accountant. Yeah. So there's different, so on pretty much a day-to-day -day basis, they have these decisions that they need to make. Right. How are we going to help them best? How are we going to help them without imposing on them.
and they don't always get it right because I don't think anyone can get that. No, you can't, no. You can't get it right 100% of the time. No. But their basic, what they're trying to achieve is a good thing, at least as far as, as I can see. I think it's a better thing to allow people to build conservation mm. from the ground up rather than impose it from the top down. Yeah. And it's a whole lot more difficult, but it is worthwhile. Yeah. You've sat in on a... Well, I don't know how many. Did you say you sat in on the AGM meetings? Mm, how, how are they? What are they like? Chaotic. <laughs> That's why everyone's told me. Yeah. So the one, one of the ones that I remember very, very well mm. was uh, I nearly said that right. Yeah. Um, but so, I, can't, I have to slow myself down when I say it. Do you find yeah. that? I have to go. Uh, yes. You have to prepare yourself. <laughs> um, anyway, so they. Their meetings are epic because also their quorum, their minimum number of people they need there, is very high. So they've set quite a high bar for themselves. Right. That means you have to gather people from the four winds of the universe to come to your AGM. So it's donkey carts and cars and yeah. trapped out vehicles and that one ran out of petrol down the road so someone's got to go fetch them. And this one's donkey ran away so he took five hours to find his donkey to put it on the cart and then it takes five hours to get there. And so you pretty much you arrive at nine if you're particularly keen, as I was, and you sit, and then you sit. And then lunchtime sort of comes and goes, but they're now, they've got big pots of uh, macaroni usually and a bit of pup and yeah. various, uh, so they'll have a chemspok or a kudu or something that they've had for own use that they're yeah. cooking up on a massive pot and then the other massive pot is a macaroni and it's all cooked by lunchtime but the manager at the time who's no longer the manager she had a trick because <laughs> she's like if you feed people now the people who are here will go away and then we won't reach our quorum. <laughs> <laughs> keep them hungry. But <laughs> we have to keep it. <laughs> so you have to hold off on lunch until you reach your quorum. So you're like, okay, well, it's now two o'clock in the afternoon, but never mind. We'll just, the lunch yeah. pots will just keep bubbling away. The one, I think we started that particular meeting yeah. at eight o'clock at night. We ate lunch at nine o'clock at night. And we finished the AGM sort of order of the day at three o'clock in the morning. Jesus. <laughs> wow. Okay. So when you're eating lunch at like nine o'clock at night, you're like, yep, yep. this is an AGM. It, is a <laughs> <laughs> it just shows though, isn't it? Like you said, how people are getting there. It's, it's mm. whether it's required, but people want to go there and have their voice and, yeah. and, and make sure that things are getting, it's not just whether they go there to talk, it's to make sure, I want to make sure things are. Mm. Especially things are if it's in the election AGM. Yeah, <clears> yeah. Then everyone pitches up. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's when you, when you get to vote. You know? Yeah. I said before we press record, I'll, I'll go easy on my questions for conservation in Namibia because there's mm -hmm. a lot to talk about. But overall, what, what stands out to you to, to, in some things this country, or maybe a particular region, are doing well for conservation, both of people and wildlife? Mm. What strikes me is the sort of accessibility of a lot of the people in government. Mm. So I think a lot of countries, um, the government isn't really accessible at all. Yeah. They might put out a policy and then you get to comment on the policy, if you're lucky. And so there's not much to and fro between the government and the people. Mm. And particularly in the conservancies, um, the government actually tries its hardest. I mean, they have budget constraints and everything like that, like every normal African country. 
So they can't always be there, but they try and be there for their conservancies as much as possible. And so you'd have a government official just sitting there and listening and talking and listening some more, and there's real sort of interchange between people and the government. So that sort of keeps them more or less on the same page. So I think the Namibian government is more on the same page as its people. Right. In terms of the environment. Yes, so obviously yeah. there's other there's bits other of things. Namibian yeah, yeah. politics and yeah, politics is politics. Yeah. But I think the environment ministry really does strive to be on the same page as the people. Yeah. Which is I've heard that a from people as well actually yeah. in rural areas. They've actually yeah. said that to me. So I yeah. think yeah. So that's pretty impressive. Mm. Um, because I've lived in a couple of other countries and the government's nowhere to be seen. Yeah. Until there's some... Which is nowhere near on yeah, the same line. Until there's some massive official event, and then it's just like the dudes up there, the government giving you the talk, and you're sitting here as your average bloke, and you don't really ever get to talk to them. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty standard. Whereas in Namibia, it's a lot more. You actually know your local government dude, and yeah. you can talk to him. And I have quite a few people in ministry that I know I can talk to, not as ministry official X, but I just know them as people because I've been in meetings often enough with them, built a relationship with them, so I actually know what they're like as people, Mm. which is a different relationship to... I mean, when I lived in Botswana for four years, I don't think I met... I might have met one or two government officials at particular workshops, but... You know, I can't even remember their names. And yeah, we right, certainly okay. didn't form a relationship. <laughs> a relationship, I yeah. think. So. And so it's a completely different... They're a lot more accessible. And they are definitely interested in looking at things. One of the guys that I'm talking about is on social media. He's, on, he's active on Facebook as himself. And he will comment on things wow. as himself. And he's a deputy director in the ministry and he will defend Namibian conservation and his own government and what they do as just him. Um, so that's a rare sort of that's, I think that's thing. very rare, yeah. 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 But what gives you hope for... I mean, you can talk about on the planet as well, but <laughs> if I ask specifically about Namibia, what gives you hope about this country for wildlife and community? I would say the people involved, so and particularly the young Namibians. Mm. So obviously the future is with the youth. And I think there is a genuine interest in the environment in Namibia that isn't an imposed thing from outside. I think your average Namibian does actually care. Yeah, yeah. Which is nice. I mean, obviously, when I say your average Namibian, you get your urban Namibians, they are less attached to the environment but yeah. even even there there's an organization that does urban development and they lead community cleanup days mm. and they get a lot of people voluntarily cleaning up informal settlements which is also a weird thing yeah, yeah. in Africa yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't it's like wow they, no one pays them they just go and they clean up their area and that's quite amazing so I think there's a lot of outreach to your your average man on the street and they do actually care and the people living in those conservancies they do actually care so I think apathy is one of the biggest threats to the environment is um, someone's destroying it and no one really cares. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when people do actually care, they will stand up against people destroying the environment. So that's the sort of thing that gives me hope.
Before we finish this episode, I just want to share some thoughts I had after my day in Caracas at the World Rhino Day event. I think the more I talk to people about any type of tourism here in Namibia, I don't think... I think everyone just understands what everyone needs to do to get by. Like, you know, some people need ecotourism, some people need hunting, sometimes people need hunting if ecotourism starts failing or vice versa. It's, things change, right? Or, or things are just needed by people. Um, there seems to be a mutual respect across many of the conservancies I've met and people that I've spoken to within them, that they just understand what people need. I, I, yeah, maybe we don't do that enough in other countries. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I've ever really considered what people need elsewhere in England, you know? I think I, I've been guilty of having my views and going, no, it should be like this. And Actually, it just seems not how it, not how it works in places like, well, it, like I said, just in Namibia, it's the only place I've been to. But yeah, it seems to be a bit more mutual respect. After that, I was back on the plane to the UK, back to my London life, walking the dogs, recording episodes of Into the Wild and promoting them on social media. All whilst wondering the things I've mentioned on today's episode. Community, love and mutual respect. Now I'm not saying Namibia doesn't have its issues and its challenges, but Namibia has shown me that these three things, when put together, can be the building blocks for keeping and building that connection to the natural world and all its inhabitants. Something that many of us in the UK have slowly drifted away from due to reasons that are no fault of our own. When you keep that sense of community with events such as the World Rhino Day Football Tournament by Save the Rhino Trust Namibia and the Namibian Nature Foundation, when you have that very community show love for animals like the rhino through ownership and ability to benefit from them, and when you have that same community hold mutual respect for other communities in the country, you create a system of empathy, a growing system that supports all. Yes, these things take time, and yes, Namibia is on the beginning of this journey, but it's a beginning that holds a lot of light. For now, that's the end of our chats in this beautiful country. We've barely scratched the surface on this topic of community conservation, ecotourism, trophy hunting and living with wildlife. There is so much more to say and to hear. If you want to hear more, then you can check out our film Beyond the Trigger on YouTube. The link's in the write-up of this episode. And you can even drop me an email at intotheworldpod at gmail.com if you want to arrange a private screening with a live Q&A afterwards with people in Namibia. My huge thanks to everyone in Namibia that I got the chance to speak with, and to Oscar Henderson, Into the Wild's producer, for putting these conversations together in a lovely episode format. A reminder to check us out on social media, share the episode or the show, and please leave us a review. And if you're able to, please drop us a tip at our Kofi site, which is linked in the write-up of this episode. And finally, any view or opinion or thought expressed in today's show belongs to the person who said it and doesn't necessarily represent anyone else on the show or anyone Into the Wild works with or is affiliated with. Until next time, keep well, stay safe, and live the good life.